reading is Psalm 130. Psalm 130, this is the Word of God, so let's give it our careful attention. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And our New Testament text, our our sermon text for this morning is Matthew 18. 21 through 35. And again, I encourage you to turn there with me so you can follow along throughout the sermon. Uh, that is page 868 in the church Bible. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me And I forgive him. Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who was owed him ten thousand talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. And his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Pray with me. Almighty God and Father, we humbly fall down before you asking from the bottom of our hearts 
that this seed of your word, now sown among us, may take such deep root that the burning heat of persecution would not cause it to wither and the thorny cares of this life would not choke it, but that it would be seed sown in good ground and would bring forth fruit, 30, 60, or 100-fold, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen. Throughout Matthew 18, loved ones, as we've seen together, Jesus is laying out principles for life together in his church. Matthew 16, chapter 16, uh, Peter makes the good confession, you're the Christ, son of the living God. Uh, Jesus says, you've said, well, uh, uh, and, and on this rock I'll build my church. He's talking about this new covenant community that he is building, this new Israel. And now in chapter 18, he's laying out for his disciples the principles that will govern this church. And he's made it very clear that this church is not going to be a utopia, that it's not going to be a frictionless place to be. The church is going to, it's, it's going to be full of sinners. It's going to be full of friction and awkwardness and, 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 and difficulty and people offending each other, rubbing each other the wrong way and hurting each other. But that's not a mistake. Um, this is part of, of God's design in the church to bring sinners together and have them rub up against each other the wrong way and hurt one another so that they can learn that their fellowship together depends not on common interests and compatible personalities, but on Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that they have in Christ. Loved ones, we cannot have peace in the church based on the flimsy foundation of just how well our personalities get along. We need to be rooted and grounded in the gospel of Christ and the forgiveness of God for, uh, for, of, our, of our sins. And the wonderful thing that we see here is that this means that sin and conflict in the church don't spell the death of the church or the end of the church, but in a sense, really the beginning of the community of the saints, that, that uh, if we don't deal with the sin and conflict, it, it will ruin us, destroy us, separate us. Um, but if by God's grace... In the gospel, under the gospel, we do deal with it well, repenting well and forgiving well. It will bring brothers and sisters in Christ together in precious new ways. So Jesus is teaching on this. We saw this last time we were in Matthew 18 as he gives his disciples, what do you do when someone sins against you? You go tell him his fault and you try to gain your brother back. And he gave that, 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 those three steps there in the previous passage. But now, as he's been teaching on this, Peter is listening. There are the other disciples. And Peter begins to feel uncomfortable about something. He gets this question starting to kind of bubble up inside him that he wants to ask, ask, ask the Lord. And it's somewhat of an uncomfortable question. Jesus, you're teaching us we need to forgive each other. But what's the limit? What's, what's the limit on how much I am supposed to forgive someone? Right, Peter's getting nervous. Um, he wants to know what the limit is that he is allowed to stick on forgiveness. Um, it all sounds well and good, right? Forgiving one brother, two brothers, forgiving once or twice. But he's starting to get nervous. How much is Jesus asking of me? What's the limit? Let's be generous, but let's be reasonable, we might say. He's saying, how many strikes before someone is out? 
I think we can sympathize with this question, right? Um, you know Jesus commands you to forgive. You know his grace is expansive. But what's, what's the limit? How many times do I have to forgive that person in the church who keeps on gossiping about me? How many times do I have to forgive that person in the church who, who, who keeps on saying, I'll do this thing, I'll change this thing, and they don't do it, they don't change it? How many times do I have to forgive my, my, my spouse for, for not doing what they said they do? And it's the same thing over and over. How, how many times do I have to forgive my dad for, 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 for losing his temper? How many times do I have to forgive my children uh, for, for, for the way that they didn't respect or listen to me? Right? We're all for being gracious, but we want a limit on it, you see. Um, now, the tradition of the rabbis in Peter's day, and, and I think this is in the back of his mind here, is that you're supposed to forgive someone three times. Three times. They do it again. A fourth time, no. You don't have to forgive them anymore. So Peter, right, he's trying to understand what Jesus is saying. This is the kingdom of God. These are the last days. So things are expanding. God's grace is, is expansive in this kingdom. So how about, how about seven times? Right, that's more than the rabbis three times. Right, that's more than double. Double plus one. Seven times. Good round number, number of perfection. That's a lot of forgiveness. To forgive someone the same sin against you seven times. Right? But Jesus' answer blows Peter's question out of the water, doesn't it? What does Jesus say? No, Peter. How about 70 times seven times? Or as some translations put it, 77 times. It can be read either way. It's not crucial to the text. The point that Jesus is making is that we're not going to replace, right, just let's, let's have a bigger number, a bigger limit um, uh, of, you know, 77 times you forgive someone. The point is there is no limit. There is no limit, brothers and sisters, to the forgiveness that Jesus tells us to show the brother or sister who sins against us and repents of that sin. Now, there are qualifications to make there. We don't want to enable abuse. Uh, we don't want to um, uh, 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 not seek um, reform from people when they need to change a, a certain behavior. Um, and yet, don't let those qualifications to Jesus' words insulate you from the force that he intends his words to have. No limit on the amount of forgiveness you are to extend to your brother or sister in Christ who truly repents. True forgiveness doesn't keep track. You're not tallying up in your head, okay, I've hit, I've hit 76 times, one more time, and he's out, finally. Right? No, true forgiveness. Once you forgive someone, you erase it. It's gone. It's done. You don't keep track of that. You can't keep count of sins. This is so different. Jesus' instructions to us here are so different from, from the way the world operates, isn't it? Um, the, the, the way the, the world operates is if you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. And, 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 and probably maybe even double what you did to me. Right? I'm going I'm 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 to get payback. I'm going to get vengeance. Um, uh, um, I, I'm not going to be taken for a fool. I'm not going to be taken advantage of. You, you sin against me once, twice, that's it. But that is not the way we live in the church. And that is not the way Christ calls us to live. There is no limit to the forgiveness we are to show our repentant 
brothers and sisters, because we live under the grace of God. We live under the gospel of Christ. We live under the forgiveness of Christ. This is such a, this is such a, a, a critical lesson, a vital lesson for us to grasp, that to teach it to us, Jesus picks up the sharpest tool in his box, a parable, a story, to drive it home to our hearts. Because we are forgiven much, we must forgive much. That's the point. Here's the story. It has two, two acts. So let's unpack what he says here in the parable. Um, act number one, the first act in the story, is about receiving forgiveness from God. Uh, so in the story Jesus tells, he starts with, with a king. There's this king. The king has many servants. And, and these servants are sort of like um, uh, the bureaucrats in the kingdom, right? They, they do the king's bidding, and he, he gives them the funds to do what they, they, they need to do. Uh, they are borrowing money for various investments or various projects, and they're promising to pay it back. But there's uh, a day coming when the king decides it's time to settle up the accounts. This is just for the king to do. This is right for the king to do. He is, he is owed a, a great debt from these servants, and now it's time for them to make good on their promise to pay it back. It is just and right for him to demand the debt. Now, the king in the parable here represents God. And so the first fact that we need to recognize here that Jesus is teaching us is that just like the king has a right to demand that what he is owed is paid back, it's right and just for him to do, we also need to recognize that it is right and just for God to demand what he's owed, to ask for payment. This is controversial to our, you know, our, our modern way of thinking, isn't it? Um, we like to think that, that we can kind of live how we want. We're not accountable to, 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 to God for that. That, that right, it's, um, we, we think of it almost like the idea of Santa Claus, right? He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake, right? That's, that's a fairy tale. God, there's a day coming and he's going to call me to account for my thoughts, words, and actions and say, pay up the debt? Really? Right, that's not how we think. Um, uh, we, we think there's horizontal consequences to sin. I'll hurt somebody, and, and I shouldn't do that. But vertical consequences? I'm racking up a debt before God? But that's exactly, that's exactly what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching us there as a judge, loved ones, that God himself is, is that judge, that he's holy, that he's righteous, and that he hates sin. He can't tolerate sin. He is full of wrath against sin. And he, he sees all of it. The wrong emotions, the wrong thoughts, the words muttered under your breath, the wrong actions. Your, your whole life is laid bare before him. You cannot hide any of it from him. And he has set a day of judgment when he'll say, it's time to pay me what you owe for all that. Now, if you're able to pay what you owe, you don't need to worry about it. But if you owe a debt you can't pay, then the game is up on that day. As Jesus continues to tell this story, we see this servant who can't pay up. We see this one servant who um, is brought to the king, and he has this massive debt, an astronomical debt. He has this debt, we're told, of 10,000 talents. It's an unimaginably huge sum of money. A talent was a unit of weight in, in the ancient world. One talent equaled about 75 pounds of gold or silver, usually usually silver. Um, one talent is 75 pounds of silver. And so, 
Uh, here we have 10,000 talents, roughly the equivalent of 750,000 pounds of silver that he owes this king. Another way to understand the sum is to compare it with the average daily wage for a laborer at the time. Average daily wage in that time, one denarius. It took 6,000 denarii to make one talent. In other words, one commentator does the math for us. He says, says this, 10,000 talents equals the wages earned in 200,000 years or 60 million days. According to the ancient historian Josephus, the total annual tax revenue for the whole region of Palestine was 8,000 talents. 8,000. And here's this servant, and he owes 10,000 talents. The point Jesus is making, right? He's, he's trying to use hyperbole. He's exaggerating. It's impossible for... for it's unimaginable that one, one, one servant could rack up this kind of debt. But Jesus' point is just to, to, to shock us with the huge crushing weight of this debt. So that, loved ones, we are aware of and, and get a sense of our spiritual debt before God. Our, our sinful tendency is to, to think, I don't really owe God that much. Um, um, right, right. I've done a couple bad things. I've also done a couple good things. My debt before God can't be all that great. I've made up for some of the bad things with some of the good things. Right? Um, our, our sinful tendency is, is, is to do that. And sometimes our sinful tendency is even... The opposite of that, in a sense, is say, you know what? God owes me a debt. He hasn't treated me the way I think he should. Lousy weather this week. I don't deserve that. Stuck in traffic. He owes me better than that. I got sick again. He owes me better than that. Right, so God's in debt to me is our sinful way of thinking. Not, what a debt I owe him. But our Lord Jesus here, he's, he's telling this parable, showing us this servant's insurmountable debt to make us feel the weight, the crushing weight of the debt we owe before God. Loved ones, consider what you owe God. He is your creator. He made you. You didn't make yourself. And, and by that very fact, right, you owe him everything you have and everything you are. He has sustained you every day of your life by His mercy. He has every breath you've, you've taken, every moment of, of joy and happiness, every meal, every, every mouthful you've ever enjoyed of, of, of good food that sustains you, every time you ever got better when you were sick before. It's because of His mercy. All of it. And we could go on and on and on. Your whole life is derived from Him, dependent on Him, and a result of His grace, His mercy, His kindness. That enough is, is a debt of thanksgiving to Him. And yet what we see in our, in our hearts, in our lives, is that we spurn Him. We fight against Him. We ignore Him. We, we, we're ungrateful. We're disobedient. We grumble at Him. We sin against him. And so we're racking up this mountain, this slag heap of debt against him. We're giving him the exact opposite of the obedience and worship and thanks that he is owed. And what is the coinage? What's the currency of the debt we're racking up? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's the bill. 
That's the bill for the sin. That's the bill for one sin, loved ones. And how many sins do you have? You owe God 10,000 talents. We owe God 10,000 talents of sin. And the wages of sin is death. How will you pay it? You can't pay it. That's the point. That's, that's the point Jesus is, is making in the story here. The, the servant cannot pay the sum. Right? No one could pay the sum. The only thing he can do is for the, the only way some, some justice can be done here is if this servant and his family and his property are all, are all sold. That's not going to even put a, put, a, put a dent in the debt that he owes, but it's something, right? It's the only semblance of justice that can be achieved here. So that's what the king here, justly in his rights, as a just king, is going to do. Demand payment for this debt. But then the servant falls on his face before him and begs for mercy. He doesn't, um, he doesn't have any resources here, but he, he falls on his face in his desperate plea for mercy and asks for a payment plan. Um, it's ludicrous, of course. He's never going to be able to pay this back. He says, Master, have patience with me. I'll pay you all. Um, but, but the king is merciful. Uh, the king is merciful to him. It seems like... Um, like a fool's hope for this servant. Right? What kind of a king is going to forgive a debt like that? If someone owed you that kind of money, are you going to say, oh, don't worry about it. I'll forgive it. Forget. Uh, I'll, cover the, the, I'll cover the loss. No, of course not. What kind of a king is going to do that? But that's what this king, that's what this king does. We read these wonderful words in verse 27. Then the master of the servant, moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. Remember, the king is representing God. Throughout Matthew's gospel, we've read of um, Jesus' compassion, how Jesus is moved with compassion, feels a great tenderness, have mercy and pity for the suffering and the sinner around him. But now we see that this is attributed to God himself, that all the compassion we've seen that Jesus has for the sick and the dying and the suffering and the sinning around him, God has that kind of compassion. For all those as well, the tenderest compassion for, for sinners and sufferers. God's heart, we read in the parable, is deeply compassionate, deeply moved, full of mercy. He is full of it, loved ones. But we can speak even more strongly than that. It's not like God's heart is full of mercy, like a cup is full of water, where the heart and what's in it are two different things. God is mercy. He is goodness. He is love. It's not this thing that he has. It's who he is. Overflowing with this abundance of his goodness and mercy for sinners. We read this earlier in our assurance of pardon. Psalm 86, verse 5. You, O Lord, are good and forgiving. God is more willing to forgive than we are to ask for forgiveness, brothers and sisters. One writer, one old writer Put it like this, in his benevolence, in his readiness to forgive, and in the plenitude of his mercy, God is all that a penitent sinner could wish him to be. Isn't he? Isn't he all that you could ever wish him to be in his willingness to forgive you the debt you owe? Sometimes in our sin we hesitate to go to him. 
how can He forgive me? Look at the mess that I've made. Look at all that I've done. And I've done it again and again and again and again. How can He really forgive me? But loved ones, His forgiveness does not depend on your forgivableness, does it? It depends on who He is. It doesn't depend on you, but on Him. So go to Him. You are completely disqualified to receive mercy, but He loves to grant mercy to those who are sinners. The king in the parable doesn't look at the servant and say, well, let me think about this. You're a well-meaning person. Um, You probably didn't mean to get in that debt, just made a few mistakes, and I know you're going to try hard to pay back what you can. Therefore, because you're such a decent guy, I'll forgive you. The king, this is what we read in the text, right? Moved with compassion. Because of his mercy, he forgives. And so it is with God, loved ones. So bring your debt to him. Don't try to pay your debt off. Go to him and plead for forgiveness. And he will forgive you. And as soon as he says, I forgive you, know that the debt is gone. The 10,000 talents that you owe him, the unsurmountable debt of your sin is gone. It's paid for. Not just swept under the rug. He's not just overlooking it. But he's saying, I'll pay it myself. I'll absorb the cost of your sin. I'll take the death that you deserve on myself. And so this is what, this is what our Lord Jesus does. right? Your, your debt of an eternity of wrath from God, God takes that. He says, I'll forgive you. Someone, the cost still has to be paid. I'm going to pay it. I'm going to make my own son suffer and pay for what you owed him. It's astounding to me, loved ones, that even as Jesus is telling his disciples this parable about this kind of forgiveness, this glorious, free, full forgiveness, that he knows that he's going to purchase this with his own life in just, just a little while. He's here speaking these words to his disciples and he's, and he's saying to them, you know, this is the kind of God that God my Father is. He will, he will cover the cost. Jesus knows as he says it that he himself is going to pay that cost for, that, for them, for, for, for us. Loved ones, go to God with your debt. Plead for his forgiveness and he'll forgive you freely in Christ. Every sin of your past, present, and future. All of it. No limit to His forgiveness. You are clean. You are right. You are justified before Him if you have simply asked Him for this. So that's the first act of the parable. It's wonderful, right? It's a wonderful picture of the Gospel. This debt forgiven that that, that we see there. But, But it's not the main point of the parable. If you can think of it like a volleyball... Uh, in a volleyball analogy, that's the set, right? Tap the ball up, you set it, and then the spike comes. And act two of the parable is the spike. Jesus drives home his point. If that's how you've been forgiven, how ought you to forgive those who sin against you? So act two. Act two in the parable is about another debt. This time it's not the debt that a servant owes the king. It's about the debt that one servant owes to a fellow servant. The first servant in the parable is owed this debt of a hundred denarii from his fellow servant. How much, how much are we talking here? Um, it's not just a couple of bucks. Um, a denarii, as we said, a denarius is, is a day's wage, a decent day's wage. So his fellow servant here owes him the equivalent of about 100 days wages, um, right? So we could say three months' paychecks. 
Um, if someone owed you that kind of money, you probably would ask them to pay it, right? Three months' paychecks is substantial. The point here is that the debts we run up against, run up with each other, can be significant. This isn't just petty cash. There's a real debt, a painful debt, a costly debt that this one servant owes the other servant. Loved ones, some of you have been deeply hurt and sinned against and wronged by those who ought to have loved and served and cared for you. And it is a real debt, a significant debt. And Jesus doesn't minimize that here. He's not saying when people sin against you, it's no big deal, just let it go. He's he's acknowledging, yeah, it is a big deal. It's a real debt that you're owed. It hurts a lot. It costs a lot. He's not talking about easy-to-overlook things. He's talking about things that are hard to forgive here. The repeated offense, the sin that really hurt. How do we treat each other in that kind of situation? Too often, we do something like the guy in the parable does. He's owed this debt, and and he goes, freshly forgiven by the king of his debt of 10,000 talents, he goes to his fellow servant who owes him the hundred denarii, and he grabs him by the neck, starts shaking him, and says, pay me what you owe me. Um, The second servant pleads for mercy. He uses almost exactly the same words the first servant used for the king to ask for mercy, but the, the first servant won't listen to this. He has no mercy, and he throws this other servant into the debtor's prison. Now, in our relationship with each other, when we're uh, when we sin against each other, we're probably not going to go and demand payment like that servant is, right? We're not going to go grab someone by the neck and start shaking them and say, "Pay what you owe." And yet, loved ones, we do something like that, don't we? Sometimes, often, in our hearts, perhaps, right? Your attitude towards someone can be very much like that. I'm going to make them pay. I'm not going to let this go. They're going to regret what they did to me. Um, maybe you start avoiding them. Or, 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 or telling others what they did, spreading gossip about them. Um, you hold the grudge against them. You have this bitterness in your heart against them. You start to see everything they say and do in as negative a light as possible. Um, when you see them, you see their sin and nothing else. Um, right, you're determined to get your pound of flesh. Get what you owe. You might go on smiling nicely at them, right? but in your heart, hand on the neck, pay what you owe, right? That's how we can treat each other sometimes, even in the church of Christ. What does God think of that kind of an attitude? What does God think of a heart that is unmerciful like that? What does God think of a heart that, that has received his mercy and yet is unmerciful like that? Um, th- this is the really horrible thing about this servant and the story Jesus tells. This is what makes what he's doing so wicked. It's, it's not just that he wants his debt paid back from his fellow servant. Um, it's not even that he's just angry about this and mistreating the fellow servant. It's that, it's that he has just received this glorious free grace from the king and all his debts forgiven. And now he's demanding that his fellow servant pay up. The king says to him, verses 32 to 33, he says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, 
just as I had pity on you. So the servant here has no, no gratitude, no sense of having received grace from God. He's just full of, of, of uh, a desire to get what he's owed by his fellow. Brothers and sisters, this is not what it is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to know that you have received all that God has to give by His grace, and you didn't do anything to earn it. In fact, you did everything not to earn it, and yet He's given it to you. To be a Christian is just to be devastated by the grace of God for a sinner like you, overwhelmed with a wonderful devastation, a joyful devastation, that God forgave me my 10,000 talent debt. Therefore, how could I not forgive others? When your heart has been, has been really impacted with the gospel of the grace of God in Christ for your sin, how can you go on holding others' sin against your brother in Christ when they've asked for your forgiveness? When you're forgiven by God, it fills up your heart with an overflowing forgiveness onto others. Jesus closes the parable by underlining how seriously God takes this. The king was willing, notice this, the king was willing to forgive that massive debt from that servant, right? 10,000 talents. But he's not willing to forgive the servant for not being merciful to this other servant. He would let the 10,000 talent debt go, but if this servant is going to respond by going out and demanding payment of his small debt from his fellow so the king has judgment on him and hands him over to the torturers, to punishment. Right, it's a picture of hell, giving over to the wrath of God. This is how seriously God takes this. We read these words in, um, in the Lord's Prayer. Right, For, We say this every Sunday. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Matthew, uh, Matthew 6, 14-15. If you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We must forgive. We must forgive each other in the Gospel and in the Kingdom of Christ. Um, but what does it mean to forgive? I want to think briefly here about, as we, as we wrap up, um, what it means to forgive each other. We're, we're supposed to forgive. We're supposed to um, uh, grant forgiveness to one another. What does it mean to forgive? Um, uh, the first thing I want to say is that Jesus is not commanding us here to forgive um, everyone, everywhere, all at once. Just like... Um, uh, what he's saying is following right on the heels of a text about going and confronting someone for their sin. Right, so right before this in Matthew 18, he says, if your brother sins against you, not just forgive him, forget about it, move on. He says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. Right, seek repentance. And, and when, when, though, when he's repented, then you forgive. Um, we are to have an attitude of being willing to forgive, but we don't have to take the action to give the promises of forgiveness to someone until they've truly repented and sought that forgiveness. The second thing I want to do is lay out, uh, lay out here uh, what, what, what forgiveness is. Um, I just spoke of the promises of forgiveness. There's a wonderful book called The Peacemaker where we get forgiveness broken down into four promises. It's very helpful 
uh, for us to, to think about these. Um, when you say, I forgive you to your brother or sister, what, is, what are you saying? What should you be saying? Um, uh, number one, uh, number one, the first promise of forgiveness is, I will not dwell on this incident. I will not dwell on this incident. When you say, I forgive you to someone, you're saying, I'm not going to keep putting this on replay in my head. That's what we're tempted to do when someone sins against us. You keep right, kind of nursing that grudge, replaying it over and over, but God's word says to keep no record of wrongs. When you forgive someone, you're saying, I'm not going to be replaying that in my head anymore. I will not dwell on this anymore. I'm not going to let it take up space in my head, my heart anymore. If, and if you do, right, after you say this promise, I forgive you, I'm not going to dwell on this anymore, that thought comes into your head again, shoot it down. I promised. I promise not to dwell on this. Second promise of forgiveness. I will not bring this incident up and use it against you. When you promise to forgive, you're saying, that sin is in the past, and it's going to stay in the past. You're not storing up, keeping tally, get this record book, and then a couple months from now you're going to say, okay, here's all the things that you've done against me. Um, no, if you've forgiven them, you can't bring them up anymore. They're in the past. They're gone. They're done. Um, you're not storing them up for a rainy day uh, when you're mad again at that person. And they sin against you in another way. Uh, to say, well, you know what? Three years ago you did this too. No, if you forgave them, it stays in the past. Don't bring it up again. The third promise of forgiveness, I will not talk to others about this incident. You would say, I forgive you to someone. It is not right to then go and start telling others what they did. You forgave them. And the fourth promise, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. That's a promise that when you look at the person who sinned against you and that you forgave, you're not going to look at them and see their sin anymore. You're going to look at them and you're going, to, you're going to be friends again. You're going to see the good in them again by God's grace. Um, not let it stand in the way of your relationship with them. This is what forgiveness is. Um, these four promises. Uh, there is no limit on this, loved ones. We must forgive 77 times. 70 times, 7 times. This is what we're called to do. But then the hardest part, there's one more thing to see. Here. The hardest part of, of all of this is, is what Jesus says at the very end, that we must forgive our brother from our heart. So that not only are we making promises and choosing to forgive and taking actions of forgiveness, but we must have the affection of forgiveness. That from our hearts, we forgive each other. How can Jesus ask so much of a heart like this and like this? That from my heart, I'm going to make these promises. From my heart, when you hurt me so bad, I'm going, to, I'm going to from my heart, joyfully and gladly and lovingly forgive. How can he ask so much of us, loved ones? Right? When you forgive someone, you're absorbing the cost. You're paying it yourself. It hurts. How can he ask us to do that from our hearts? But again, loved ones, consider who's telling the parable and who's calling us to forgive like this. It is our Lord Jesus Christ. And soon he's going to the cross to pay for all your sins and also all the sins of your brother and sister in Christ. And, and there on the cross, he's going to cry out, Father, forgive them to those who are crucifying him. Right? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive those for whose sins I am being crucified. Right? That's 
Christ from his heart. It's a genuine cry of desiring God to forgive sinners. He is, he is innocent. Right? He is the perfectly innocent victim. Pure, holy, uh, but, but yet he's being crushed and abused and destroyed and tortured on the cross. And he, through it, prays, God, forgive. With a Savior like that, you can begin to say this. Because we see this. We see this in the church of God. We see it in the book of Acts, right? Stephen, he's being stoned to death. And what does he say? Do not hold this sin against them. How is Stephen able to say that? Because his eyes are on the resurrected, ascended Christ. Who said that about him? We see it down through church history. We see Holocaust survivors shake the hands of the Gestapo who beat them. I forgive you. Why? Because it's this Christ who's gotten into their heart. We see those who lost their husbands murdered on the mission field. And they go back to the very same people who killed their husbands and they bring the gospel to them. Because they have this Christ, this forgiving Christ in their heart. We see it, uh, those who lost loved ones in a mass church shooting say to the shooter, we forgive you. Because they know this Christ and the kind of forgiveness that He's shown them. Loved ones, if we have tasted the gospel of Christ, the goodness and the sweetness and the life-giving preciousness of that gospel, oh, for this heart, how can we not forgive? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for the gospel. Thank You for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You that You are good and forgiving. By Your Spirit, work faith, work repentance in us. Lord, give us wisdom as we seek now by Your grace to put what we've heard into practice, to from our heart forgive one another. Lord, we pray that You'd bring much healing in broken relationships, even in this church, in families in this church, in marriages in this church, and among parents and children in this church. That You would work Your Gospel into those relationships into the hearts of those in those relationships. And that we indeed would forgive one another even as You've forgiven us. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.